It's Friday, July 14th, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. The National Park Service runs 18 facilities in Pennsylvania, mostly historic sites and memorials, but also parks and recreation areas. For each one, there's a long list of needed repairs and upgrades that have been piling up for years due to inadequate funding. People should be clear that Pennsylvania's national parks and others throughout the country remain wonderful places to visit. But it's the long-term protection and enhancement of national parks that concerns us quite deeply at this point because this has been going on for a while. Ours is a relatively small share of the more than 1,600 NPS-managed sites nationwide. Still, the cost of deferred maintenance in Pennsylvania facilities alone runs to more than $105 million. Across the entire system, we're talking about upwards of $11 billion worth of maintenance needs still waiting to be addressed. Now, bipartisan legislation currently advancing in Congress would create a revenue source that would begin clearing the backlog, but that's only the first step toward restoring a system that, despite years of neglect, remains one of the most popular federal institutions, second only to the Postal Service. We'll take a closer look at the challenges America's national parks are facing coming up. But first, we're two weeks into the 2017-2018 fiscal year, and the state budget process is almost concluded. Everything but the small matter of how to pay for the $32 billion spending plan approved late last month. Regardless of how the end game plays out, it is pretty clear that, once again, environmental and conservation programs are getting shortchanged. Let's take a deeper dive now into the week's news from the state capitol. And to help us through that, let's bring in our Harrisburg correspondent, David Hess. He is, of course, the former secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection. These days, he tracks environmental news from across the state on the PA Environment Digest blog. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. The big headline item this week, as has been the case for the last couple of weeks, I think, is is the state budget, which is close to being resolved. Is that accurate to say we're we're near the end of this process? Well, we're near the end, but we have a long way to go. I think Mm -hmm. that's the best way to describe it. Really, two, two things happened this week. The General Assembly passed a a general fund budget that contains, you know, most of the funding for agencies like DEP, DCNR, and agriculture. Governor Wolf allowed that bill to become law without signing it uh, Monday at midnight. The second thing they were working on this week was a revenue package to support the general fund budget bill that is now law. And the House and Senate simply just could not come to an agreement and left town on Tuesday and they said they're not going to be back until there is agreement on that package. So how does that change prospects potentially for for a severance tax on oil and gas or some of the other revenue sources that have been debated? Well, in, in the revenue package, everything is sort of up in the air. You certainly could include uh, a severance tax, but I think that's really unlikely. I think the other things that are also in play, unfortunately in a negative way, are things like transfers from different funds to the general fund. For example, in years past, they had uh, transfers out of the recycling fund to support the general budget and other funds of that sort. We don't know whether or not they are going to do those transfers because they have to make up for over $2 billion in revenue to balance both last year's budget and this new year's 
budget. So really everything is on the table. Well, it's interesting because those sort of questionable transfers of money, as I understand it, were at the core of this Supreme Court decision we just got a couple of weeks ago, which uh, was pretty impactful. And I I believe, including for the budget itself, there's already legal action in process uh, arguing that the budget as it exists violates the Environmental Rights Amendment. Can you break that down? Sure. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court came out with a ruling June 20 that said that a transfer from DCNR's oil and gas lease fund, which contained royalties and other payments for drilling on state forest land was unconstitutional because it violated Pennsylvania's environmental rights amendment. And the budget bill that became law contains a transfer from the oil and gas lease fund of $61 million to the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources to support their state park and forestry operations and for grants the agency gives out. So the Pennsylvania Environmental Defense Foundation filed an action in court uh, with the Commonwealth Court to make a ruling on whether that transfer is constitutional or not. So that's going to take some time to work through you know, the, the, the legal process, but certainly creates a cloud over that budget bill that is that is now law. Surely, I mean, you would have to think that's in lawmakers' minds as they figure out what the next step is. Well, you have to understand, they have been focused on big-ticket items. Should we expand uh, liquor sales? Should we expand gaming opportunities to every nook and cranny of, of Pennsylvania? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are, you know, big-ticket items. And... You know, unfortunately, environmental stuff is pretty far down the rung, so I'm not sure how much that sort of an issue has weighed yet on the budgeting process. But, uh, you know, we'll certainly see what what the court says, because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court remanded that environmental rights amendment decision to Commonwealth Court to sort out these sort of issues, including whether or not to essentially pay back $383 $383 million that were transferred in 2009 and 10. So that's hmm. going to be a, a, a big issue and a big case when it comes to the court. So stay tuned on that, I guess. Moving to some legislation that we've been watching closely at PEC, uh, Senate Bill 624. This has to do with uh, permitting for longwall mining operations and specifically a case in southwestern Pennsylvania with, uh, with Consol Energy. This has been approved by the General Assembly, and it's now on the governor's desk. What are you expecting the governor to do? Do you have any, any sense of which way he'll go on this? Well, the governor, um, late in the week, at the governor's office said, you know, didn't, did not give any indication of whether he would sign that legislation or not. I mean, it involves a console mine whose permit was appealed by a number of environmental groups, and that appeal was working its way through the Environmental Hearing Board. The bill itself retroactively changes the provisions in law related to whether or not the Department of Environmental Protection, which reviews plans for underground mining and whether they affect streams or not. It involves that process for protecting streams from underground coal mining, in this case, longwall mining. So that is, is, you know, everybody's watching you know, the governor's office to see what he will do on that particular issue. 
And we have a lot more analysis on that particular bill at PAC, especially in the policy section at PACPA.org, just as an aside there. The other thing I wanted to get to quickly, and this goes back to the issue of funding for DEP, the Environmental Protection Agency has just put out a report, not really the first of its kind, but this one focusing on uh, on MS4 and DEP's ability or, or lack thereof to effectively regulate that. Can you tell me more about what was in that report and what the implications would be? Sure. This this was actually this was actually a follow up report. They had done a similar report in two thousand eleven, and this now second report they both came to the same conclusion. DEP doesn't have the staff and the other resources needed to operate its what they call the MS four stormwater pollution prevention program to meet minimum federal requirements. And this is as you mentioned, it's one of a series of reports that have been coming out. At the end of last year, a report came out on the Safe Drinking Water Program that regulates drinking water sources and systems in Pennsylvania with a a similar conclusion. Not enough resources to operate that program to minimum federal requirements. There's also been similar reports on the air quality program, on the surface mining program, sort of one after another that is, is really putting down in black and white what the consistent year-after-year cuts in DEP's budget have done to these programs. And the interesting thing is a lot of more conservative legislators want the department to only adopt standards that meet federal requirements. And here, ironically, their own cuts to the budget have prevented DEP from even meeting those minimum requirements. So it it's, again, an indication of how badly that the General Assembly and, frankly, the governors over the last 13 years have funded the agency. It's kind of a race to the bottom. It is, and, and unfortunately what it does is force the, the department to increase permit review fees, to institute new fees, to support their programs, or we risk losing federal primacy, the primary authority to operate and administer federal programs, environmental protection programs in Pennsylvania. And I think everyone agrees, you know, it it would not be a good idea for the federal government to take over these programs, that it's better for the state to administer them. So it really backs the agency into a corner that you have to raise fees. Well, you can read more about that story and and many others on paenvironmentdigest.com compiled and uh, edited by David Hess, who's the former DEP secretary, keeping us informed on what's happening in the Capitol. David, thank you so much. Sure. Anytime. Thanks. To the feds now. The U.S. House Appropriations Committee is considering legislation released earlier this week to fund the National Park Service. It's part of a $31 billion funding package for the EPA and Interior Department that is considerably more than President Donald Trump had proposed for those agencies, but still $824 million less than in last year's budget. And park advocates say it's a continuation of a years-long trend of underfunding the system. To put those numbers in perspective, I spoke with John Garter, budget director for the private nonpartisan National Parks Conservation Association. We were disappointed to see that bill. If that bill were to become law, it would continue a pattern of national parks being underfunded and would actually provide cuts compared to last year. We've seen 
National Park funding uh, decline over a few years, but then the last couple of years we have been reassured that appropriators have provided some increases, but there's still a lot of work to do to bring National Park funding up to where it used to be and to where it needs to be. And so the bill proposed by the House would uh, reduce funding for the operation of national parks, which means when you add in the impact of inflation and other uncontrollable costs, along with a cut that might appear modest, it means that the superintendents who operate national parks would have to find additional ways to cut corners to make ends meet and would continue to struggle with understaffing and might even need to hire less staff next year. There are also cuts to other programs, other parts of the National Park Service budget. Uh, for example, the Land and Water Conservation Fund faces a steep cut in the bill. That is a very important program that has protected parks in Pennsylvania and throughout the country from incompatible commercial or residential development within the border of national parks. When parks are designated, there can often be private parcels, private inholdings, they call them, within parks. When people buy those properties or when uh, people who own those properties want to sell them, a developer can come in and develop the property. The Land and Water Conservation Fund allows the Park Service to offer funding, which comes from oil and gas receipts, and to buy those parcels. So it's really important for protecting parks. is a very popular program that enjoys bipartisan support, but unfortunately this bill would cut that deeply as well. Also, the bill includes a lot of policy riders as well, which environmentally damaging policy riders really have no place in funding bills but unfortunately we have seen a pattern in recent years where members of Congress have sought to undermine environmental protections through those policy riders so there are a number of them that would undermine clean water and clean air protections in national parks and also delist from the Endangered Species Act the gray wolf among other damaging policy riders. Do you know of any that, are, uh, that would affect Pennsylvania directly? The Clean Water and Clean Air Act protections are uh, pretty ubiquitous. They are important for parks throughout the country, especially those that rely on uh, their natural resources uh, versus historical parks that might face uh, lesser impacts, uh, but they're you know, are certainly places, for example, it depends on the details, but the uh, Delaware water gap or the, the uh, upper Delaware water gap, which could be affected. We've been talking about how a lack of funding chronically has affected the Park Service's ability to, you know, c carry out its mission of conservation and these sort of uh, higher goals, I suppose. But there's also a level at which funding is taking a real toll on, you know, operations just at the level of infrastructure and the parks that we do have and the facilities that exist. There is a, a lot of maintenance, uh, about $12 billion, I think, worth of deferred maintenance that, that our parks are up against. It's been very unfortunate, and at this point, it's gotten, gotten to deep concern that maintenance has grown to be such a problem. Among other problems, you mentioned the operation of national parks. We've seen a situation where 
we have seen a decline in staffing for parks over the last five years there's been an 11 percent decline in staffing across the national park system on average but meanwhile we've seen record increases in visitation there's been so while we've seen an 11 percent decrease in staffing we've seen a 19 percent increase in visitation and what that means in parks around the country is they are increasingly trying to rely on volunteers who play a very important role but can't be a realistic substitute for full-time staff for a number of reasons. There have been seasonal rangers who haven't been hired and it has made it difficult for parks to meet their mission which is essentially twofold. To protect resources which can be compromised through not having enough historic resource uh, protection specialists or natural resource specialists, people who do wildlife monitoring, clean air and clean water monitoring. And then the second part of their mission, which is to serve visitors, to make sure that current and future generations have a, uh, an enjoyable and inspiring experience. And unfortunately, one of the first things to often fall by the wayside when the superintendents who manage parks have to cut corners is that interpretation and education uh, can be compromised and visitors who are looking for rangers to provide those educational programs to walk them through the parks and tell them about our history unfortunately those those programs uh, aren't uh, around as much as they could be or as much as they used to be depending on the park and then at the same time maintenance has gotten to an almost crisis situation. There are billions of dollars in repairs that are needed at parks throughout the country for basically three reasons. Uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this infrastructure is very old. Some of it is uh, hotels and other uh, historic facilities that were built when the system was started to accommodate visitation. Uh, roads and, and other infrastructure. Uh, some of it was built during the Civilian Conservation Corps of the 1930s when they engaged in uh, a lot of cabins and roadways and other projects throughout the park system. And then 50 years ago, Mission 66, when Congress invested a billion dollars in park infrastructure. And now all of those uh, facilities, trails, visitors centers, big projects like drinking water and wastewater uh, systems, things that visitors don't see or think about, they're all really showing their age. And so these things are uh, aging. There has not been sufficient funding from current funding sources uh, that Congress provides uh, every year for uh, the uh, non-transportation facilities and then every few years for those facilities related to park transportation. That funding has just been insufficient, so we've gotten to this situation with uh, aging facilities, uh, aging infrastructure, and yet insufficient investment by Congress over the years. Well, it's interesting that park visits are up so much. Do you think park users in particular or the public generally understand this problem or the degree of the problem, and at what point will they begin to notice 
or maybe they already are, uh, when they visit a park, that, that the services they expect are not there. How much of what's going unfunded or underfunded is, is as you said, invisible, and how much is, is something that's going to be you know, looking you in the face when you show up at a national park? That is an excellent question. Uh, there are a lot of things that visitors just don't notice. Uh, the, when they use the drinking fountain or flush the toilet, they don't generally think about where that water comes from or goes. And those projects are generally multi-hundred million dollar projects. Those are some of the really big ones that cannot possibly be funded through current funding sources. And that's part of the challenge is that visitors don't think about those things. And the Park Service has done a nice job of prioritizing those facilities that visitors do use. And in some cases making things look better than they are. So there might be a visitor center that has a new paint job, uh, for example, and it looks alright on the interior, but meanwhile the plumbing system or the wiring system is completely out of date, the building's not up to code, and maybe it's even got a leaking roof. Uh, at the same time, there are things that visitors notice. Um, there have been a few uh, facilities that have been closed over the years for uh, lack of people to staff them or because they are just uh, de declining in terms of uh, uh, th their uh, you know, ability to be functional buildings. Uh, visitors can notice that sort of thing. Trails can be closed or just degraded or campground facilities are in really rough shape and visitors notice those things. Potholes on roads, those can uh, impede on the visiting experience. By and large, uh, the Park Service has prioritized safety, so certainly no one should be concerned that uh, as a result of these problems, visitor safety is at risk. And in general, there's not a huge pattern of, of really anger, angry or upset visitors, but certainly we're at the point where if this problem isn't taken care of soon, then invariably it will start affecting the visiting experience. Uh, and our concern is that doesn't just impact the American families who uh, love their national parks so much and are so inspired by their visits and have so many things that they learn from places like Independence Hall, uh, but that it could also affect the economies of gateway communities who rely on visitors coming there to spend their money. And if visitors are having a compromised experience, they may not come back, they may report unfavorably to their friends, and so there is a long-term threat to those park economies, which is why Congress needs to make the investment that ensures that those communities can continue to thrive. And I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about the broader economic impacts for communities near or adjacent to or within, maybe in some cases, parks. Good news, obviously, for now is people are still visiting national parks, but what are the projections further out? If we see some of the scenarios that you're uh, worried about happen, how would that look at the main street level in some of these communities? It's difficult to project because there are so many variables, but I will say that the uh, parks that have been experiencing huge increases in visitation are really struggling. There are seasonal rangers, for example, who were tasked with interpretation and providing just basic visitor guidance, who instead have been 
reassigned to jobs like taking care of uh, porta potties, which can't be a fun job, or um, helping with dealing with uh, huge increases in vehicular traffic. And this is just compounding the problem where it's difficult to take care of basic maintenance. They, uh, the uh, many boots on the ground and tires on the road uh, add additional strain on infrastructure that is uh, already decaying. And so if this pattern continues, it is going to be extremely challenging for the Park Service to accommodate all of those visitors. And it certainly raises questions about what then happens with the visiting public and do they start electing to go to other places because the park's experience has been degraded. I don't want to be alarmist because we don't want to get there. People should be clear that Pennsylvania's national parks and others throughout the country remain wonderful places to visit. But it's the long-term protection and enhancement of national parks that concerns us quite deeply at this point because this has been going on for a while. What's the situation in National Park Service facilities in Pennsylvania? How far behind are they on maintenance? What's the cost going to be to get them back up to where they need to be? Well, there are uh, maintenance uh, concerns across Pennsylvania's national parks, um, and there are also staffing and budgetary concerns. The, the president's budget, I should add, is a very, very damaging proposal for the National Park Service, a 13% proposed cut and we are urging Congress to reject that proposal and it does have implications for Pennsylvania's national parks. For example, there's a 6% cut proposed to the operating budgets for both uh, Independence National Historical Park and Gettysburg National Military Park. In Gettysburg, they're already dealing with a funding crunch where, for example, they have 11% fewer staff than they did a few years ago. There is maybe some reason for optimism in the form of legislation that is moving this year in the Senate, a bipartisan bill that would create, a, I believe, a revenue source to take care of some of these maintenance backlogs, at least. What's the disposition of that bill right now, and what impact can we expect it to have if it becomes law? I appreciate you asking. We're very excited about that bill and really commend the bipartisan members of Congress who have introduced it, not just in the Senate, but a few weeks later it was also introduced in the house so now there is a bill out there that members of congress can sign on to as co-sponsors that seeks to address the deferred maintenance backlog in a very robust fashion over the course of 30 years by dedicating money to the problem beyond current revenue sources which i've indicated have been insufficient and it dedicates those funds from current royalties from onshore and offshore oil and gas leasing. Offshore uh, royalties already provide funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund that I outlined earlier, and there are other needs that are provided for uh, through those royalties. Uh, the remaining money after other commitments are met is significant in the billions of dollars. So those royalties are sufficient to address these deferred maintenance needs and a small portion of that money would be used to dedicate that funding to 
addressing the highest priority projects on the Park Service's repairs list. And we would like to see that bill move ahead. We uh, urge members of the Pennsylvania congressional delegation and other members of Congress to sign on to that bill and demonstrate that if there is an infrastructure package that comes to fruition, that there is bipartisan momentum to include the national park system within that package. You'll often hear people say, you know, when we're talking about the funding problems, that privatization, or at least partial privatization, is it partially an answer or if not a complete answer. What do you say to that argument? Is there, is there anything to that? That's unfortunately among a number of problematic proposals that we've seen for addressing national park funding needs that are not just problematic, but unrealis- unrealistic. Uh, polling that uh, we did a while ago and other polling has shown that the American public really values the National Park Service as a federal entity. The National Park Service Ranger is among the most popular of all federal servants. People love their national parks, they love and appreciate their national park rangers. The public does not want to see park services privatized. There are already concessions that operate uh, some services within national parks and those are important and they play uh, an important role in providing park services. But there are limitations to where those services should be provided. By uh, privatizing park services, it would be uh, undermining the presence of park rangers and it could threaten to increase costs for visitors because if, for example, a park service campground is turned over to a private entity, they could make improvements to that campground, offer a level of services that could start to approach the many uh, for-profit or private sector campgrounds that can exist outside of national parks, which already have plenty to offer. And so those, uh, those private sector companies could increase those fees so that they make a profit and invariably that would mean higher costs for visitors. So there are a number of ways in which that's inappropriate. Also worth adding is that park rangers who service those campgrounds can perform collateral duties. So if, for example, there's a wildfire or a search and rescue incident, those park rangers have the expertise and the authority to be reassigned to other priorities. And if you had a for-profit operator, they wouldn't have the ability to do that. John Garter with the National Parks Conservation Association. Thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate your time and thanks for having me on. And that's the show for this week. By the way, Pennsylvania Legacies is going to be taking a couple weeks off, uh, much like the state legislature, on vacation until early August. In the meantime, though, may I recommend you check out the website at pecpa.org, where you will find, of course, all past episodes of our show. Search for Pennsylvania Legacies. They're all in the uh, listening room and also on the PEC blog. You can dive in there and find more on PEC's work across the Commonwealth at pecpa.org. 
It has been a busy summer for us here at the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. A couple of weeks ago, we released a major report that was building on the discussion at our March conference on achieving deep decarbonization for Pennsylvania's electricity sector. It's a huge information resource, and you can now read the full report at peck-climate.org. We will be following up on the, the contents of that report, both on this show and other events we've got planned for later this year. So stay tuned. Uh, get caught up on the report, again, at peck-climate.org. Another off-campus website you should know about, if you haven't already, please check out change.com. Note that is ch4nge.com because ch4 is the chemical symbol for methane. Methane, of course, is a powerful greenhouse gas and is the main component of natural gas. There's a lot of it leaking into the atmosphere in natural gas producing states like Pennsylvania. Many states are taking steps to limit those emissions. It is a big topic. There's a lot of climate science to understand. There's a lot of economics to understand. And to help people understand all of those issues, we've created this website, change.com, a way to help business leaders and lawmakers and decision makers of all sorts, as well as Pennsylvania citizens, get a better handle on the challenges and the opportunities as we transition to cleaner, safer, natural gas production by limiting methane emissions. Please check it out and share with friends and colleagues or anybody you know that might be interested at ch4nge.com. And of course, you can always find the link at peckpa.org. That's it for today and for the next couple of weeks, Pennsylvania Legacies returns August 4th. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.